Every generation has a story and point of view. Come join the conversation at the XYZ Experiment. Welcome to the XYZ Experiment podcast. And today we thought we would have a conversation about dentistry. And I don't know if you're like me, um, but I do see a dentist very regularly. Fiona actually is my dentist. Um, But (laughs) I don't think I appreciated what the scope of practice of dentistry is um, and how full on dentistry is until I became friends with Fiona and heard a little bit more about what that was. So we thought it was a good opportunity to chat to Fiona about the life of a dentist. (laughs) Don't turn off listeners, don't turn off. (laughs) And I think particularly if you're one of those people who are scared of dentists, (laughs) this might be helpful, Mm -hmm. a helpful conversation. So to start, Fiona, how does, how does one become a dentist? Mm-hmm. So I can talk from my own experience only. Um, so I never, I, I've actually got a big family history of dentistry. So one of my uncles was a dentist. My mum was a dental therapist, as was my auntie. They were oh. all dental therapists. So I've got another sort of second uncle that's an orthodontist. So it was really in the family. Um, but it's not a career I considered in any way. Like when I was in high school, it wasn't something I was thinking about. And in fact, when I was in high school um, and I finished year 12, I'd applied to do Japanese economics because I'd done years of Japanese and spent some time in Japan. And that was my career. Now, my mum's family is all from New Zealand. So I was sent over for Christmas to New Zealand that year. And my uncle, who's a dentist, I was staying with him. One day um, he said to me that his nurse had rung up sick and would I come in and help hold a sucker for him, literally, right? So I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, I'll come in and I'll do that. And uh, I spent three days um, just, I mean, honestly, not doing real dentistry, just helping where I could. And then I rang my mother up in Perth and said, change all my preferences. I'm going to be a dentist Wow! after seeing this. And she was really like, are you sure Like that's what you want to do? And I was like, yeah, I want to change all my preferences. Wow. And she was like, it's going to cost 50 bucks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, going back 30 years ago. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I changed all my preferences. And my only problem was to get into dentistry, you had to have physics. And I hadn't done physics at high school. I'd literally done Japanese instead. But the university said I could do physics as a course anyway. I did university physics to get through. Oh, I'll tell you what, it was something else learning. I had to know all the two years beforehand, then progress on. and yeah, that's what I did. So, so, and I don't regret it. Like it, it's, um, it was a great thing to do. So, at, I went to the University of West Australia. Um, there's 30 students in a year. That's you, so small. Yeah, mm. you do a year of science first, and then you apply, um, and then it's four years of dentistry. That's just back then on top of that. So, um, and yeah, and that's how I got into dentistry. So. Once I'd got through that year of science and done that extra physics course and then my grades were good enough to get me in. Um, Back then, um, you didn't have to sit any sort of um, uh, verbal exam because now they do. They do verbal exams with dentists and medicine to make sure that you're the right sort of person to take care of people, you know, that right sort of personality Um, or whether you'd be better as a scientist um, in the background. So so it was just about grades. It was all about grades. So And my grades got me through into that. So, yeah, so that's how I got into dentistry. (laughs) Mm. When I got into dentistry um, back then, women didn't do 
uh, dentistry. So the years out of the 30 people, there'd only be one or two women. And we were the, f I, I got into dentistry in 1986. God, a long time ago, 1986 when I got into dentistry. And, um, and so 87 was my first year. And, um, and we were the first year with a lot of women. We had 12, and that was a big number, like really, really big number of women in dentistry. Now the course is normally more than 50% women. Like yeah. It's more, and they imagine. now have 50 or 60 students, but now it's more women than men in the courses. So, yeah. What are some of the other bigger changes that you've seen within the industry? Oh, it's massive. So when I did dentistry, there was you didn't have computers, um, and so, like, when we did assignments and things like that, literally we do it on a typewriter and all handwritten. And I can remember going to university, um, I can still remember this day, saying to them, my mum's just got a new typewriter in that auto-corrects your spelling. And everyone was Whoa. like, whoa, like, that was incredible, you know, that. Um, the other thing is um, we were the first year taught to wear gloves and masks. Okay. So we were the first year to um, be taught about infection control and starting to use the autoclave and things like that. We were the very first year, and we were told that we were the first year. Uh, so we would wear masks and gloves, and we would autoclave things that we thought had blood on them. You didn't autoclave everything back then, which is just crazy now when I think about it. And so when I went to my first job, I remember going in, and the owner wasn't wearing gloves and masks. And I said to him, oh, I'll need to wear gloves and masks. He goes, OK, well, we'll start to order them in. And then he wore gloves but not a mask for about the first four or five years. And, um, and then also with the sterilisation, we used to use this material that you would chemically sterilise everything. It'd be sitting in your surgery open and you'd put all the instruments into it and they'd sit in there for a certain period of time. Mm. And now that chemical is considered so dangerous and so cancer-causing that you're not allowed to use it unless you're like in safety gear and you've got air extractors and we would just have Whoa. it open in the surgery oh my gosh and things like your extraction instruments and uh, not your drills your same drills would be used from patient to patient but to all wiped down um would go through the autoclave now that just saying all that just seems oh my god like unbelievable you know unbelievable now it's like everything gets autoclaved or chucked and everything's covered in plastic. And Because I remember when I first introduced plastic into my practice, I was in a partnership in the country and my business partner was like, what are you, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I've just been to a conference and they're saying this is what you're meant to do now and, you know, and you're meant to plasticise everything and it blew his mind. <laughs> so, so now that's just every day, you know, yeah. but... But it was a yeah, very different time, very, very different time. Because 1986, 87, so you were then started practising in... 91. 91. Mm -hmm. I was 21 when I graduated from university as a dentist. Full on. Yeah. And so your first job was that working, you said it was working in a practice with others, but then you very quickly set up your own, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so um, uh, when I was in my final year of university... If you didn't get your own job, um, then uh, you got employed by the government. And one of the lecturers had come to me and said, um, oh, you'll end up in the country in the government, you know. Um, uh, I, I decided to take that into my own control, that I wanted to decide where I was going to be. And I applied for a job in uh, Geraldton, 
which is 450 kilometres north of Perth, um, because back then um, it was sort of well known that if you went to the country and got country experience, you got experience of everything because there's no one to bail you out. You haven't got any specialists or anything to help you. So I really wanted to do that because I thought it would really um, up my skill set, like, and it, it did, obviously. Um, so, yeah, so I went to Geraldton and started, you know, I graduated... I think my first day of work, I had just finished university in December and my first day of work was like the 21st or the 22nd of January. I was 21 and just got going, you know, turned up. And, oh, my goodness. Yeah, and because I knew I was going to the country, I took extra training, um, particularly in extractions at the time, because you have to, back when I was a dentist, I don't know what it's like nowadays, but you had to, um, you had to graduate with a certain number of things under your belt, so you had to have pulled something like 20 teeth you had to have done so many crowns, you had to have done so many fillings, and all this had to be signed off. I uh, had to have done so many root canals, like, and, and so um, you had to have all these finishing numbers before they, they would graduate you. And so because I was new, I was going to the country, I then asked like some of the lecturers if I could come into the government clinics and do some extra stuff. So like I graduated with like almost 200 and something extractions under my belt, because I knew wow. that's what I would be facing in the country. Um, yeah, so so I sort of prepared prepared myself for that. So, yeah, so I moved to the country, and um, it was my first year. And uh, the the man who owned the practice, he um, had a best friend who had just finished specialising as a root canal specialist, and literally he'd finished the course, and he was out two, I might have been six months, and he died of a massive heart attack. Right, this is his best friend. And so the owner of the practice sort of faced his own mortality. He was only in his late 30s when this all happened. And so he's, by then, 22-year-old me, he came to me. And he literally said to me, if you want to buy half my practice, I'll sell it to you. But if you don't, I'm going to find somebody else. And literally, I wouldn't have a job. So a couple of months later, I bought half the practice. How, did, how could you afford to yeah. do that at that point? It was really hard at the time because I went to a number of banks and the banks kept, they actually said it to me, you're of childbearing age, so we're not interested in you. Oh. Literally said it to me. I owned my own home by then I, because dentistry is a good pay, obviously. And back then, I think I bought my first house for like 21000 Okay, know, it was, yeah. It's pretty cheap <laughs> in the country. It might have been even less. That's but was, like now what you need for like a deposit yeah, on a small house. Yeah, my first house, you know, a little three-bedroom cottage. Um, uh, yeah, 21000 I bought my first house. little three-bedroom cottage. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a cottage. Not a studio yeah, apartment. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> um, with a big piece of land attached to it. Um, um, uh, but um, National Australia Bank at that time, and I'm not trying to make a plug for them, but at that time they were making a big push for female entrepreneurs was just a big thing. And so um, I went to National Australia Bank and, and they said, oh, we'll loan you the money to buy this practice. And then the other partner, um, he was saying, oh, I will guarantor her, which um, I don't think you had to in the end, but he was prepared to do that. And I'll move all my banking to you if you'll give her this loan. And that's literally what happened. Wow. So Yeah, so they, they it was a big initiative NAB was having at the time. So, um, so that's how I got my loan and I got... I think I was turning 23 or something or, yeah, when I bought into this practice, I knew nothing. Like, I f it, it was crazy. I knew nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, so I bought half a practice. Yeah. And when you were there, yeah, so when you were there in the country, did you oh. see different patterns of, of 
conditions or needs that were different to what you'd expect to see in a more metropolitan area? I hadn't had enough experience with metropolitan, but um, country people, they're just so lovely and Mm. so relaxed and um, pay their bills on time and just... It it was a really lovely time to have and a lovely city to have a practice in. I really loved Geraldton. And I was a very big fish in a small pond. The people were fantastic to me and they gave me so many opportunities. There's lots of things that I did in Geraldton, which I don't get the opportunity here because in Geraldton you just get tapped on the shoulder. Oh, will you come do this? Yeah, sure. Whereas in in Melbourne they don't know who you are. You know what I mean? Like they just don't know who you are. Um, and, and also Geraldton was a very different type of dentistry. So, um, there was a lot of extractions, a lot of children I used to do back then. Um, all amalgam fillings, like, um, that sort of work, which we don't do anymore. Um, I used to do a lot of theatre. So I actually had a theatre list every week. I got to know all the specialists really, really well, because I'd be in one theatre, they'd be in the other. And of course we chat in between patients and... You know, we talk about things that we were doing and sometimes I'd go in and see some of the procedures and, wow. you know, you'd all be scrubbed up properly. Yeah. I'm not talking about anything about um, bad that way, um, which was just amazing, you know. And I was doing, I was doing, you know, full arch implant surgeries and I was doing remove every tooth out of someone's mouth and I was doing lots of children's dentistry because there was no specialists at that time coming up, so you had to do it and people couldn't afford to travel to Perth to do that. So, um, and I was also on an emergency roster and all the dentists in Geraldton shared this roster. So I think it was every nine weeks you had the weekend and the week and we had this beeper which you would carry and the hospital would call you like if a trauma had come in. So there was a few times I got to work with surgeons, like the general surgeons, and they'd be putting people back together, doing their bit and I'd be doing my bit. Like it was incredible. It was just incredible, incredible times. Yeah. And I think that is maybe something most people wouldn't have an appreciation for is that kind of scope of practice. Like you are as a dentist doing surgery. Yeah. You are. I'm not so much now, but in the country I was, I really was doing a lot of, a lot of stuff um, back then, you know, teaching the surgeons some stuff as well, you know, as we were, as we were doing stuff too, because we had a lot of general surgeons there who would do everything and they'd want to know about the dentistry as well in case if we weren't available that they could do some of that stuff. So, um, yeah, I sort of feel it was, um, it was an amazing time for my career living in the country and I feel it makes me a much better dentist today, you know. Um, and then also because I was in the country and I had this, my practice was very successful um, when I was 32, I won Telstra Businesswoman of the Year um, uh-huh. uh, in West Australia and Westpac Businesswoman of the Year and all sorts of stuff. And 40 Under 40 did all of that. Um, and so then the University of WA contacted me and they said, we want to put um, students through your practice in the country. So I did, I did uh, was it three or four years? I was um, part of the University of West Australia and... Students would come up and um, and they would then work through my practice because they want to encourage people to go country. So they'd yeah. come up and they'd work with me and we'd take them into theatre and we'd do all sorts of stuff. And then over the years, I employed some of those people, you know, the ones that um, really wanted to go country would come and work for me. So, yeah. So, so. how long did you work as a country dentist for? Uh, 17 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, 17 years. And, and then what led you to decide to, to move 
I think um, uh, I, I, I wasn't able to have children, so that was one of the things. And, um, and I just needed a change. I needed mm. a change at that start. And I was really missing my family by then. I know that sounds strange, but because they could come and visit any time. But, yeah, I just had it in my head that I, I was ready to go back to the city. Um, and so I don't know if you two know this, but I bought a practice in the city and then I'd fly between the two cities. Oh, oh stop it. Gosh. I did it for a few years. Yeah, so we um, uh, we moved to Perth, and also for my husband's career as well. Like his, it was becoming very small for him. He needed to do something. So, um, so I moved to Perth, and then um, and I had dentists working for me in Geraldton. But every Monday morning, I'd be on an aeroplane at six in the morning, and I'd fly up. I'd see my first patient at nine. I kept a car at the airport, just this little cheap little car, so and the airport looked after it for me, and then I would just get the keys off the people. I'd drive to work, have a staff meeting at eight, first patient at nine, I'd work through, stay the night, work through the next day, and then fly home the next day at eight o'clock at night, and then, um, and then go to my city practice <laughs> for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I did that for a number of years, yeah, until what happened was is one of my dentists who worked for me in Geraldton said, I want to buy this. Okay. Can, can you sell it to me? Because I wasn't in the place to sell it. I was keeping both. Um, and then he said, look, I really want to buy this. And he was the right person. He'd been there for a couple of years and the patients loved him. And I said, oh, okay, all right, we'll sell it. So that's what happened. We sold the practice. And how did you feel when you did sell it? No, it was good. It was it was because I knew I was leaving it in good hands. Yeah. You know? So I knew um, that I was leaving it with the right sort of person. And he's still there. He's still very successful. Um, a really nice fellow and um, yeah it's hard though it's hard to explain the relationships that you build with your patients and then um, and saying goodbye to that that's really difficult so um, you sort of almost you feel like you're abandoning them you really do hate moving practices um, because it's like saying goodbye you know you've built something and then you're just walking away from it and and um yeah, so that's the hardest thing. I had a really, I had a story this week that just blew my nurse away. So I had a patient come in this week who I have treated for almost 30 years since she was a child. So I treated her in Geraldton for all these years, right? And then, um, and then I treated her in Perth because she used to come down to Perth to get her teeth done. And then she'd moved to Sydney and I've been treating her at my previous job. And then she was saying to me... Um, so she'd fly to Melbourne. Yeah, well, here's the story for you. So she, I saw her this week and I said to her, are you down for anything special? And she goes, no, we drove in yesterday. I'm seeing you today and we're driving home tonight. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my nurse was like, what? And she said, oh, Fiona's been doing my teeth for 30 years. And then she said, oh, mum said to say hi. We chatted about the families. We chatted about different things. And then I seemed to her, drive safe, like... You know, and then she's going, yeah, yeah, great. And, and she doesn't need any work. She just wanted to see me for her checkup because I've been checking her for years, cleaned her teeth. Um, and then when she left, I said to my nurse, not that I was going to, but I go, imagine if I was sick today. And she I had know. specially driven down. But these are the relationships that you can form with people, yeah. you know. So I still see people from Geraldton in Melbourne today. Like, it's just... It's crazy. It's just crazy. I just want to go back because for someone that's in their early to mid-20s 
the idea, you know, when you envision your professional development during this time, it's an exploratory period where you're just developing those core skills and you're trying to figure out what area of whatever profession you're in you are interested in kind of exploring further. How did it feel being in your young, sorry, your early 20s and, and owning part of a clinic? What responsibilities did that hold for you and, and how do you think that improved your, your practice as well? Um, it was, it, it, it's funny because at the time it didn't feel too hard. It mm. just didn't feel that hard to do. We had a practice manager who sort of ran it, so paid all the bills and did all that sort of stuff. Um, and I had the other older dentists as a guide, so I just followed whatever they did, you know. The only time it became really difficult is in, you know, I'd been in the practice for maybe 10 years and then all of a sudden I wanted to do stuff differently and then that was when it got really tough. Okay. Like, it got really, really tough. And because they were like, but we've always done it this way. And I'm like, well, I want to try something different. And all of a sudden I had a voice for where I wanted the practice to go and what I wanted it to do. And one day um, the, the other practice manager, uh, the practice owner said to me, you've really changed, like a- accusing me of it, going, you've really changed, you're really different now. And then I sort of looked at him and I went, yeah, I have. You're right. I have absolutely changed. But, you know, I've been a, been a dentist for a few years, had a few ideas of my own. And I think just me saying to him, yeah, I really have. You're right. I'm the one who's different, not you. You're right. He was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> but it had to be said, you know. Yeah. So, so, yeah, just, just negotiating that sort of stuff. The thing is, at the time, and I still feel like I carry this with me today, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be like the best I could possibly be clinically, um, holistically um, with my staff. It was seven days a week for me. And um, I look back on it now, I think, wow, how did I do that? And um, yeah, and, and I just had so much energy for it. I just really, really had a lot of energy for it. And I just... I think at the time I had a professional mentor as well and that really pushed me to new limits and possibilities of Mm. things that I could do and so I was really focused on that, you know, really, really focused. But it was a different lifestyle, like, you know, um, I started work at nine, not at eight, like I do now and on certain days I had a two-hour lunch break because I had a personal trainer and I would do my personal training in the middle of the day. Oh, my God. And then I'd go back to work and work till six, you know, Um, which I can't do here, you know. So, um, you know, because my house was across the road from my surgery, literally. So I could go home and have a quick shout, you know. So I would do a run with the trainer or I'd do some gym with the trainer because everything's literally five minutes away. So I used to keep my fitness up really high back then. I think that's probably the only way I could have kept up with what I did. I really was very, very healthy. Um, And then the other turning point for me was becoming a type 1 diabetic. And I often wonder if the type 1, it started when I was 32, was because I had totally burnt myself out. I'd gone too hard too fast. So I sometimes, there we go, the shame of I caused that, which is just ridiculous. You definitely didn't cause it. I know, I know. (laughs) but, But at the time, I was just thinking... Because every time when I was unwell, I kept going to doctors saying, um, I'm unwell. And because it's a small town, everybody knows what you're doing. And, you know, the doctors would say to me, because I knew them personally, you know, we'd have dinners and all that. They'd go, you're doing too much. Yeah. Because I was like, 
doing personal training. I was part of a soccer club that I was doing three oh days a week. I was the treasurer of the soccer club. Of course you were. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was in two book clubs. I was running my surgery seven days. I, was, I built a house during that time, you know, physically built it. I, um, and then also I was part of the university and I was part of the city of Melbourne and I was part of their um, mentoring program. And so when someone's saying to you, doing too much, thinking, oh, yeah, I am, I'm, this is why I'm sick, I'm doing too much. So I think by the time the diagnosis came, I'd already had that story in my head that I did too much. So yeah. this is why it happened, you know, that I did too much. But I think it's an interesting thing of um, the drive to be excellent. Mm. And sometimes it's, as someone who does the same, I think, easy to neglect that side of your well-being and mm. to put it down to other things. But mm. um, I don't think it's ever the cause. It might be that those kind of diseases rear themselves in situations of vulnerability, but probably not the causal pathway of what it was. Probably one of the most, the best thing that's come out of my career is the opportunity to develop others and to let them see their potential. I'm talking mm -hmm. about people who nurse for me, who reception for me, who probably came to me not realising how incredible they were, but leaving that they knew that. Yeah. Like... That's one of the things I'm most proud of that that um, I helped develop, develop people. Yeah, and to this day I try to be that person still, even though I don't own the practices anymore, um, and I don't want to own another dental practice. By the way, I'm sort of that's past my career now um, um, for that. But um, I still like when I've got a nurse with me or I've got a young dentist. I just want to help them see their potential. I just really want to help them see that, what they could possibly be. So once you left Geraldton, you'd spent a considerable amount of time there. You'd had a, quite a lot of success. Mm. You'd honed your craft. When you kind of went back to your, to your other clinic, what was kind of your motivation there? Did you say it was, so it was mentorship predominantly? That was something we, that... We still worked for the university through my city clinic as well. Um, so we still did a lot of students. Um, I was doing a lot of surgery back then. So at the time... I don't know if I'd get it so easily now, but because I'd worked so much in public and private hospitals in Geraldton, it was really easy for me to get room, um, uh, theatre sessions in the city, mm. uh, which would I probably wouldn't be able to now. Um, um, so I immediately went back to the surgery, did a lot of surgery. Um, at the time, I was doing a lot of implant work and I was training um, other dentists to do implants um, at the time um, for a little short period of time. Um, so I sort of kept doing a lot of that. But literally, the, when I sold my practice and then I was in Perth, literally the diabetes really got hold of me because I just, just didn't give enough respect to what I'd come under. And literally my body gave up, you know. So mm. I, um, it became... That's why I sold my practice um, because it came to a point where uh, this is my city practice um, that... Um, something had to give, something absolutely had to give, yeah, so, so yeah, so I sold the city practice and then worked, I worked for a while in Perth and then I came to Melbourne, yeah, yeah from there, so, and the, I think owning a dental practice now is quite different, it's a lot, it's a lot harder, I think, actually owning a practice now than it was back when I was doing it, yeah, I think it's a lot harder. 
And so you enjoy just because you would have spent a majority of your career as an owner as opposed to just an employee. Yeah. How, how's the experience? Do you feel like there's less responsibility now? Yeah, I like the less responsibility. Um, but I, I often view, I still think of an owner mentality, you know, mm. things like waste in the practice. You know, I'll still say to my nurse today, hey, you're squeezing out too much of that stuff. You know, think about what we're doing don't put so much mm. out. Like, I still have that mentality. Mm. Let's reuse those um, per patient, you know. So, like, we have these little wipes that we use on a tooth. I don't need a new wipe on the same patient. If I'm yeah. doing three fillings, I'm happy to use the same wipe for those three fillings during this appointment. You yeah. Know? Mm. Um, and so just I, I do still have that mentality quite a lot. And I understand, like, what it means if I have a sick day for the owner because they're not earning any income, so I feel really bad about that and... Yeah, so, and, you know, turning up early and on time and running on time, I still, and I and sometimes I wonder if I'm bothering the front desk too much because I'm forever in my book and I'm sending messages because I just think like an owner. I just can't help it, going, yeah. oh, this will work better like this and how about this and how, can you follow up on this? But I think they really like it because I'm on it. I'm on my book, you yeah. know, I'm on it and I understand my patients and I'm on it, yeah. Mm. And sometimes it surprises them because I'll say, They'll say, oh, such and such called. And I say, oh, I'll give them a call back. Give me the number or I'll email them. And, like, I'm happy to do that because that's what I had to do as an owner. So um, I'm very front, front still, yeah. And then, because you just mentioned then that, you know, if you come in, if you, when you can't come in because you're sick, mm. that you have an appreciation of the impact that has on the practice. Yeah. During COVID... Yeah. Um, what impact did dentistry go through um, in terms of managing COVID and all of well, the Well, first of all, we were shut down. Yeah. Like, we couldn't do anything. Which it I find extraordinary because dentistry is a very important part of health and wellbeing. But continue. Like, you <laughs> had to have the worst toothache of your life to come to the dentist. Yeah. Like, it was extraordinary. Like, we couldn't... We weren't allowed to do a checkup. We weren't allowed to do a clean... Um, we went like, it, yeah, when I look back on it now, it seems extraordinary what happened to our industry. We were decimated, yeah. like just like, like even financially, I had two years of no income. Like I can't explain to you what that does to somebody. Yeah. It just, well, people will know, but you just don't expect that of that sort of industry, you know? Um, and, uh, so there's still... We were already treating everybody like they had COVID because of HIV and hepatitis and, you know, things that are really contagious anyway. Um, so it didn't really change too much of what we were wearing and doing and things like that and, and our hand sanitisation and our sanitisation of the rooms. The one big change we had was a pre-rinse that we use and I still use that to this day. Yeah, but not, not a lot else has changed. Uh, we don't take our scrubs home, but we never really did. We've, we have everything done there. So, um, yeah, maybe um, we might have been using face masks for a little while there, but not for long, you know. And switch to N95s. Yeah, yeah, N95s, of course, um, which we've gone back to normal masks again. And I've always worn very big glasses anyway um, to protect my eyes. So, um, yeah, so all that sort of stuff, yeah. Mm. And also um, uh, the other thing as well is, is, like, I don't want you coming to me even if you think you've got a common cold. Yeah. Like, I just don't want to see you. So sometimes we have patients ring up going, oh, I've got a bit of a sniffle and a bit of cold. Can I come in? And I just go, no. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. go, no, you know. Yeah. I'll see you in a month. 
Yeah. You know? So probably a bit more strict around please don't come in if you're unwell. So, mm -hmm. yeah, please don't come in. And also I probably... Um, the other thing that's changed is uh, I don't shake hands anymore, so I don't do that. I used to always go into the waiting room and shake my patients' hands. I don't do that anymore. Interesting. At all, yeah. Because we were told not to do that. And then now I, I, I literally don't want to shake your hand. And poor old, a lot of baby boomers want to do that, you know. But I try to, in my body language, not encourage that, you know. Yeah. Um, but look, if a baby boomer puts their hand out, I will grab it. Like, I don't want to leave them hanging, you know. Um, and I probably wear a mask um, when I'm not seeing patients a bit more around the surgery. So I'll wear it in the waiting room and I'll do different things as well. I just got comfortable with that and it suits me to do that. So I change my mask all the time. Mm. Um, but yeah, shaking hands definitely changed. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask because even if maybe we don't want to call it like that, you've definitely had multiple different phases I did. Yeah. In, in your career. What would you say changed the most for you in your own personal practice as you kind of developed and, and worked in these different settings? Definitely the surgery. So um, when I came to Melbourne, um, I worked at a clinic for a long time that really discouraged us from doing it because they had a lot of specialists there. Right. And they wanted just to send the work to the specialist. And so they sort of discouraged us from doing that. And, um, and I lost. And then also I broke my shoulder. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't extract teeth at the time for months. Like it was a long time before I had, I lost a lot of strength in my arm. Like even pulling an impression out of someone's mouth was hard for me. Um, and then because of that, I, I literally lost that skill. And, and it, I, I could probably go back to it. I mean, I did years of it. Um, but yeah, I, and I got more into a lot of the um, cosmetic stuff and um, a lot of the fill and drill is what I call it. I do a lot of that now. And, um, but also I sort of developed a specialty within my practice that um, I can treat the very difficult patients. And so one day I remember being in the lift with the owner of a previous practice I worked at and he said to me, because um, they had a lot of dentists working in this practice. And he actually said to me, do you understand where your place is, is in this practice? Because everyone has to find their place in a practice. And I was saying, I absolutely understand my place in this practice. It's to treat the complaints, the people who are nervous, the people who are terrified of needles. Mm -hmm. that, that was my place in this practice. Um, if there was a problem, Fiona would solve it. Like, it actually got a bit exhausting for me because you'd have patient after patient after patient who like hates needles or doesn't like being at the dentist and you know it got to the point where I went to the front to the the, the people running it and said I have to have a break like you can't I can't have one one after the other it's mentally really taxing for me to sort of go on to the next one and the next yeah, one because it takes yeah, a lot really. it takes a lot it takes a lot to get those people through so because it's people have a true ptsd of dentistry like i get it i have no judgment at all of them i just have such compassion for them thinking wow who broke you like mm. you know what happened because someone has done something to these people that has really and some people I don't like to ask the story because I don't want them to relive it in the surgery but sometimes people will volunteer and you're like oh my god mm. no wonder you don't like the dentist or no wonder you don't like needles or you know like there's a reason behind it so yeah, right. and it's really nice converting them that um you know that you've seen them for so many years that they just get more and more comfortable you can see it like I've got a few patients 
that I've treated for years in Melbourne now because I've been here uh, 13 years and I'll just go, God, can you remember when you first came and saw me? They go, I know, I know. You know, it's wow. just so nice to see that, that all of a sudden they're just so relaxed and so different. And yeah. Can I ask you then, considering how important mentorship is for you and, yeah. and all the different kind of timelines you've seen of, of dentistry, what is some of advice you would give to either aspiring dentists or up-and-coming dentists? I think if you're a young dentist, I think, honestly, moving to the country is one of the best things you can do. Mm -hmm. I know um, uh, they, they're desperate for dentists and medicos in country towns, but you do not get an experience like that anywhere else. And I'll give you a really simple example. You can do a crown and the person has to have a temporary crown on it, right? It's got to last for two weeks. Um, and you, if you live in the country, I used to have people who lived on stations, which was 400 kilometres from where the practice was. In that two weeks, that temporary crown could not fall off because they're not going to be able to get back to me. And if it does fall off, they're going to have pain and discomfort and things like that. So you learn very quickly to be highly skilled at things that will last a long time. Um, and so like even now in my city practice, like... If someone rings up and says their temporary crowns come off, I'm stunned. I'm like, mm -hmm. what did you do? You know, and normally yeah. they'll tell me what they've done. I'm like, okay, all right, they, they caused that. Um, but I don't think you learn that sort of those sort of skill sets within the city because it's so easy. They can just come back in the next day, you know. So um, And so, like, often when I'm doing some dentistry, some of my nurses will say things like, oh, my God, it just looks so good. Or just, like, they're always just saying to me, God, that looks good. Or, or, and I think, yeah, because you had to learn that in the country because the people just can't come back, yeah. you know. You've got to solve, or you've got to solve this toothache there and then because they've travelled 400 k's to have this toothache solved. So you learn really good diagnostic skills as well. So And then also the skills of pulling out teeth, doing root canals, like, because you have to. You've got nobody else to bail you out, so you, you have to. I've been in some hairy situations where I've had teeth and I was thinking, you know, the thing's smashed to a million pieces and I'm thinking, how am I going to get this out? And, like, it's, I'm the, I'm the last person. I have to get this out. There's no one here to rescue me or help me or guide me. So you learn really good um, um I think you learn really good skills to, to problem solve, yeah, because of that. And then that goes into other parts of your life as well, like running a business and problem solving that way. And I actually see myself as a really good problem solver and also as a person who can just roll with it, like mm. roll with the punches. You don't know what's around the corner and that's okay and you just roll with it. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mm. But I think also, you know, going back to the fact that that previous practice had given you all the difficult yeah. patients. Yeah. What advice would you give for young dentists in terms of the patient-dentist um, interaction and, and how to do that? It's changed a lot with the patient interaction as well. I was talking to someone recently about it that um, people are more terrified of needles now um, than they ever have been. Interesting. Yeah, and, and more terrified of the dentist than they used to be. And I don't know if... if um, People were like that back 30 years ago, but they didn't have the space to verbalise it. You know, people didn't verbalise their feelings, but now people will actually say it to you. So um, um, so I think for a lot of young dentists now, they would be facing a lot of that, a lot of people. And some of these people have never had a feeling. So you just think, why, why are you fearful of that? Do you want to like, know my theory on this? Yeah, okay, yeah. 
<laughs> so I have a theory that younger generations have grown up watching true crime. Oh, right? and seen terrible things. And seen terrible things of like criminals pulling out people's teeth uh, as yeah. a form of yeah. torture. No joke. And then yeah. I think they're like, oh, that's what it's going to be like. Yeah, because often like if I've got uh, someone in and I give them their first filling and all that, they'll say to me, oh, that was much easier than I thought. That's what they'll actually say. Yeah. And just go, yeah. But I try and make sure it is. Like, yeah. I try really hard to make sure that appointment is absolutely going to to give them a positive... Like, I, I really do think very carefully about it, about how I'm going to approach that appointment. Um, so I think with a young dentist, you shouldn't treat all patients the same. I think that's really important to know. I don't like that saying about treat others as you treat yourselves. That's To me, that's completely wrong. It should be treat others as they expect to be treated. Yeah. And you need to look at each person differently and just in your own mind say, I need to do this for this person. I need to do that for this person. You might need to have five minutes of a chat with a person before you do anything or it might be the sort of person you just need to get going. And so you need to roll with that and, and understand that. So... I think the other thing as well is um, uh, I'm not a money-motivated dentist and I know a lot of people can be that way and I'm definitely not. And um, I'm more about solving your problem and, and things like that. And so taking the time, like, okay, you're not going to make much money for that half an hour, but you're going to make a client for life. Just actually taking the time and getting to know them and speaking with them and the thing is though when you stop and you speak to a patient for a while you actually learn more about their mouth before you've even looked in it just from mm. chatting to them mm. it's fascinating to me I, I almost know what I'm going to say I have a certain line of questions I go through I almost know what I'm going to say in that mouth before they even open just because of what they've said to what we've been chatting about so take the time take the time and just get to know them and and so then when you do that um there's almost this trust that you've built up with them. So they're going to let you look in their mouth, you know, yeah. they're going to let you touch. And also the other thing as well is talk through that appointment, not to your nurse, but to the patient. So I'll say to the patient, oh, I'm just going to put a puff of air on your tooth now and uh, you won't feel anything that's not cold. Oh, I'm just going to touch your tooth now with my probe. Oh, I'm just going to have a feel of your lips now. I'm just checking for any oral cancers. Um, I'm going to call out a whole lot of numbers for your gums. One, twos and threes are all great. So I don't want you to worry when you hear those numbers. Just just talking through mm. the appointment as you go, it makes such a difference. And so many people will sit up and go, that was great the way you told me there was going to be some water in my mouth now or that this drill's a little bit more slower. I really appreciated you gave me that little forewarning. And that tends to help the appointment roll a bit quicker. But what it also does is it cues your nurse to what's next. You know? yeah. So I'll say to my patient, oh, now I'm going to get my jewel that has a bit of water so my nurse has got the sucker ready to go. Yeah. Or now I'm going to put a puff of air on your tooth just to clear out the decay. My nurse has got a sucker ready to go. So the nurse knows. So it's, it's cueing my nurse as well to to just move with me, move with me. And a lot of people say, oh, you and your nurse work so well together. And I think, yeah, because I'm telling a complete story as we go. She's listening and she's like, I know where the story's going, you know, mm. so. I feel like so many professions could learn from that technique. Oh, for sure. Like, and I've actually had medical, um, here I am bragging, I've had medical professionals in my chair. I treat a lot of medicos, um, I think, because they like that sort of thing themselves. And, and they'll go to me. I remember one really, really famous surgeon saying to me, 
you make me want to be a better surgeon. Wow. He actually That's said amazing. that to that me. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, and I think it's just because of the way I treated him and I was so compassionate. He had a reputation of not being so nice <laughs> to his staff, you know. Yeah. Um, he was great socially. Um, but, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for just – it's a human being in your chair, you yeah. know. It's not a tooth to be drilled. It's a human being. And so – just treat them like that and yeah I just I like saying hello to them if I see them in the waiting room I don't ignore them I'll go up and say hi how are you going we'll just be a couple of minutes or you know like on Friday I walked in and the patient I came out I went outside to I often like to sit outside during lunchtime and he walked in when I walked in he goes I'm here to see Fiona I said I'm here I'll just be a couple of minutes yeah. and just just acknowledging people and just you know smile on your face and all that sort of stuff just so important well, you yeah. clearly have a passion for what you do. Yeah. Well, yeah. I find um, I can't do five days anymore. I find it mentally a little taxing for me nowadays. So, um, and and um, I do three days. So I, I mean, some, I worked five days last week, so it's just it just depends some days. But often I think I can't give that Fiona five days a week anymore. Yeah. Like I can do it three and four and she can be there and she can be present every day. Um, but if I do too much of it, um, I, I get tired and I think I just can't bring that energy every day to it anymore. So, um, yeah, so I, I just, I really watch, I really watch how I work now. I'm really careful of that. And um, and it was really hard over COVID because when I got back from COVID, I'd lost so much of what they call work fitness. I just wasn't used to that. Half an hour, hour, just one thing after the other. It took me a while to get back into that rhythm again, but I well and truly feel back into it again now. Um, and I, I think the other thing I want people to realise as well with the dentistry, which is so different to say other medicos, is you don't go into the doctor and you've got a gallbladder problem. The doctor goes, well, hop on my table now, I'll take it out. Whereas you come in and see me and you've come in with a ticket, I'm like, all right, hop in my chair, I'll do it now. I'm doing surgery all day long because dentistry is surgery. Yeah. You know, and I'm doing it not knowing what's coming through the door sometimes. So it's just like, okay, we'll just do that now, you know. And so a lot, not a, medi a lot of medicos, well, ER would, of course, but not a lot of medicos do that. So when I've had people in my waiting room waiting, they're just going, oh, my God, is it like this all the time? I'm going, all the time. It's yeah. just bang 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 you just you just go 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 so yeah <laughs> do you feel like you've got a better insight now on the dentist fiona as opposed to the podcast fiona absolutely that was amazing thank you for sharing that with all of us yeah. you're welcome i'm hoping that helps with your profession with your clients yeah no i definitely brought up a few things that i've been reflecting on as yeah. well yeah. yeah, I just think for dentistry they should do um, psychology as well. <laughs> they should definitely do that. Not only do for the agree? dentist, but yeah. for the patients. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Dash. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the XYZ Experiment podcast. And don't forget to leave a rating and a review. If you've enjoyed our show and um, like what you're hearing, tell all your friends and family and hit that subscribe button. If you want to hear our updates and know when episodes drop, follow us on Instagram at the XYZ Experiment for all the latest updates and news. And our original music was composed and performed by the amazing Luke Champion. <laughs>